Uh, I'm going to get right to the preaching. We're going to preach today from Nehemiah chapter 3. We're going to continue our Nehemiah series. Are you guys enjoying this so far? I am. I'm enjoying it, obviously. Uh, let's get to Nehemiah 3 together. It's a difficult passage for me to read, so please be gracious as I read this, the whole thing. The Word of God reads, Eliashib, or Eliashib, the high priest and his fellow priests, went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as, as, far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section, and Zakur, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hesanaah. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. Merimoth, son of Uriah, and son of Hakaz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Meshulam, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazebel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Baana, also made repairs. The next section was repaired by men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. The Jeshanaah gate was repaired by Joida, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Besodeah. They laid its beams and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. Next to them, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatias of Gibeon and Jadon of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Uziel, son of Harhias, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section. And Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Raphiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. Adjoining this, Jediah, son of Harumaph, made repairs opposite his house. And Hattush, son of Hashabneah, made repairs next to him. Malkijah, son of Haram, and Hashub, son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of the Ovens. Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of a half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. The Valley Gate was repaired by Hanan and the, res the residents of Zenoah. They rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. They also repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the Dung Gate. The Dung Gate was repaired by Malkijah, son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakram. He rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. The Fountain Gate was repaired by Shalon, son of Kol Hosea, uh, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over, putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the Pool of Siloam by the King's Garden as far as the steps going down to the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of a half-district of Beth-Zur, made repairs up to the point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool in the house of the heroes. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rehum, son of Bani. Beside him, Heshabiah, ruler of the half-district of Keilah, carried out repairs for his district. Next to him, the repairs were made by the fellow Levites under Binu, son of Hanadad, ruler of the other half-district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezra, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section from a point facing the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. Next to him, Baruch, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Next to him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the entrance of 
Eliashib's house to the end of it. The repairs next to him were made by the priests of the surrounding region. Beyond them, Benjamin and Hashib made repairs in front of their house, and next to them, Azariah, son of Maaseiah, the son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. Next to him, Benui, son of Henadad, repaired another section from Azariah's house to the angle and the corner, and Palal, son of Uzai, worked opposite the angle and the tower projecting from the upper palace near the court of the guard. Next to him, Padiah, son of Parosh, and the temple servants living on the hill of Ophel made repairs up to a point opposite the water gate toward the east and the projecting tower. Next to them, the men of Tekoa repaired another section from the great projecting tower to the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests made repairs, each in front of his own house. Next to them, Zadok, son of Immer, made repairs opposite his house. Next to him, Shemaiah, son of Shechaniah, the guard at the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shalamiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zaloth, repaired another section. Next to them, Meshulam, son of Barakiah, made repairs opposite his living quarters. Next to him, Malchijah, son of one of the goldsmiths, made repairs as far as the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate as far as the room above the corner. And between the room above the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs. We need to rest. <laughs> let's rest with the word of prayer and let's get into this together. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that we get to read this list of people. And uh, God, we thank you that we get to study and read them. We don't know who they are, but Father, we see from this text that there is a great joy in rebuilding this city for you. And Father, we thank you for the work that you did in them, and we thank you for the work that you are doing now in us. And we look to you, and our hope is in you, and our joy is in you. So Father, we pray that you'll find your pleasure in us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to start my message with a question. I was very curious, show of hands. How many of you in this room like serving? You know, serving at home, serving at church, serving any at work. How many of you like serving? I like serving. I like serving other people. Yeah? Good. Maybe 10%. Right? 10%. Yeah, I'll give another 10% for those who are shy. So maybe 20% of the room likes serving. And that's actually awesome. If I'm honest with you, I don't like serving at all. I don't like it at all. I don't, I don't like serving. I don't, I don't like it when the Korean side asks me to do things for them. You know, it could be the littlest thing in the world, but I just don't like it. I don't like when people ask me to do things for them. You can ask me and I'll never show it to you, but I'm just being honest now. Okay. You know, I don't, I don't like it. You know, I'm very selfish. I don't like having to spend however long it takes to make dinner for my kids every single day. If you have kids, you know, you got to feed them and it takes time to make dinner for people. And I don't, I don't like doing that. I don't, I, I don't like spending time in front of my computer writing and creating sermons and then coming up here and preaching them, you know? I mean, I know, you, you whatever, whatever. You can think whatever about your pastor, but that's the honest to goodness truth. You know, I, it stresses me out all week, and I'm like, why am I doing this? And then even, in the, even the moment I'm done preaching, I go down, I'm depressed. I don't know if that's normal, but every week I'm depressed. You know, I always feel like, oh, whatever. Anyway, we won't get into that. But I don't like it. I don't like serving people. I, but I know it serves you. So I work, I try to work hard, but I don't like it. I like myself and I like serving myself, but I just don't like serving other people. Are you guys like that? 
no, you can't be, no, of course not, right? But I'm like that, you know? Now, if you've never realized it, though, serving is actually a very integral part of life. Everything, almost everything that we do in life, we're actually serving. You know, when you go to work, do you realize that you're, when you go to work, you're actually serving your boss or you're serving your company or maybe you're serving your customers? It's serving. Work is serving, right? If you children, if you serve in like one of our children's ministries, not only are you serving the pastor, but you're serving those children and you're serving those children's families, right? If you're, if you're married, you spend every single day serving your spouse. If you have kids, you serve your kids. If you're single and you live with your parents, you serve your parents. All of us serve. Life itself is service. And if you've never thought about it before, Serving is what ministry is. Serving is ministry. Work is ministry. Do you guys know this? You know, in the Old Testament, when you look at the Old Testament, did you know that the Hebrew word for work has the exact same root as the Hebrew word for worship? As a matter of fact, more often than not, the word for work and worship is the exact same Hebrew word in the Old Testament. Isn't that crazy? What's that telling us? What that is telling us is that our work is our worship. Our work has always been designed to be our worship. And if work is ministry and ministry is service, then by the transitive property, <laughs> is that the right? Is that trans- all right, anyway. Uh, then all of service, if A equals B and B equals C, A equals C, right? Is that transitive property? Okay, gosh, don't ever ad lib anything. Then all of service is worship. Do you guys see that? All of service is worship. You know, we said from chapter one that God wants to make you a minister. We said last week in chapter two that God wants the birth of ministry in us. Why? So that we can live our life in service. Service to him and in service to others. We were created and saved to serve just as much as we were created and saved to give him glory and worship. Right, So God values service so highly in us that the verse that describes why Jesus came to the earth says what? Jesus came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus then goes on to say what? He says the greatest, the person who God deems the greatest in heaven, the greatest in the kingdom is who? The person who chooses to be a what? A servant of all, right? If you want to be great in God's kingdom, you got to be a servant of all. And so what God wants from each one of us is to become a servant. Serving is our worship, right? Serving is what we do to make him happy. And so God wants to use each one of us to become a servant so that we can show Christ and have our generation experience Christ through us. And I hope you're getting that message through through our Nehemiah series up to now. But once again, serving is hard, isn't it? Serving is very difficult. We don't like it, right? And because all of you are just as sinful as I am, we don't naturally want to serve others. But to grow in our eternal purpose and also to grow to be more like Jesus, God has called each one of us to be a servant. And that's why Nehemiah 3 is going to be so helpful to each one of us, because in Nehemiah 3, it's going to give us some insights 
into serving that will help us become the servants that God always wanted us to become so that we can make him great. So today, you know, if you, I know our chapter is a little bit, is a huge list, but when you look at chapter three, we see that the, the work of restoration and the work of renewal in the city of Jerusalem has begun, right? And that's exactly what we've read all throughout this chapter. And if I can be frank, it's, it's a difficult, it was a difficult chapter to read because it's basically just a list of all these people that God was describing in the work of rebuilding this city. And, you know, the thing is, it's always intimidating to preach a list, isn't it? Right, a list of people and all that kind of stuff. But every single list that we've ever preached on in the past, there's always been like these treasures that have been found in those lists. And so today, you know, I really dug deep and I tried to find those treasures. And there are. There are some amazing treasures that are found in this list. And I want to share them with you today. And the treasures that we're going to discover are principles about serving God. And they are principles that God wants you to practice in your life so that our service and our ministry will always be used to make him great. So through the faithful examples of the people that we find here in this chapter, God is going to share with us three principles about serving him. And the first is this. We serve for God's glory. Verse 1. Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated. There are two things here that uh, the priests did, which was very, very intentional. And the first is this. Um, they began the whole reconstruction project, right? You know, where do you start when you rebuild the city? They said, why don't we start here at the sheep Gate. Now, can anyone guess why they called this particular gate the Sheep Gate? Yeah, and it's always weird. Asian crowd. Are the people going to say, are people going to respond? Uh, the reason why, okay, do you guys want to respond? Is it like that? Or Eddie, just shut up and go on. Uh, why do you think they called it the Sheep Gate? Because sheep go through it. Okay, it's very simple. But why did they need, where were the sheep going? Huh? You know, I don't know what you said. Sorry, Cecile. Out to pasture. That's definitely a possibility, but unfortunately, just to save time, that's not the correct answer. You know, I wanted to be gracious, but, you know, they're going to the temple. And why are they going to the temple? To get slaughtered, okay? The sheep gate was a gate that led directly to the temple so that the people could make sacrifices using these sheep, but why were the sacrifices needed to pay the penalty for the people's sins, right? The sheep gate was a gate that was dedicated not only for the worship of God, but so that all the people could remain in right standing with God. Isn't it amazing that that's where they decided to start the reconstruction project, right? For the priests to begin right there, it's signaling to everybody once again that, hey, the priority of our society, remember, was what? The worship of God, right? This is where we need to begin. All of us must start our whole lives and every part of our lives being in right standing with God. Our lives are to be a worship. But the thing is, they forgot that. That's why the whole society collapsed and crumbled because they lost that one simple fact in their lives that God has to be first, that God was to be the priority, that the worship of God was the whole reason why we exist. 
And so for the priests to start there, they were reminding everybody who they were created for and who they were saved for. And for me personally, I love that they named the gate the Sheep Gate. It was so simple. But the reason why I love that they named it the Sheep Gate is because it reminded the people every single day when they saw it that it takes the blood and the death of a lamb in order to satisfy the wrath of God against their sins. If not for these sheep, the wrath of God would be against his own people. Now, if you saw that every single day, you'd be like, oh man, thank God for his grace. All it takes is a sheep in order for God not to be angry with me, in order for me not to go to hell, right? And that's a huge reminder for them. And so today, that points us to Jesus Christ, isn't it, right? Jesus Christ, the perfect Lamb of God who died upon the cross to pay the penalty for all of our sins. But back then, they didn't have Jesus. But every day when they saw those sheep go through that gate, they were like, oh, man, that's what it takes. And yeah, in all honesty, too, for the average Jew, a sheep was very expensive. It's very costly. So for them to give up a sheep, you know, they were constantly humbled by that sight, by the gate. And they were constantly thankful that all it takes is a lamb for God's anger not to be against us. The second intentional thing that these priests did was they dedicated the gate itself. And, I, and so to dedicate something means to set that thing apart or to reserve it solely for God alone. And the thing is, you guys read it, it's just the, the Bible to you. But to me, it's a very funny thing. Who dedicates gates? especially one that's reserved strictly for livestock, right? Nobody dedicates those. But that's the first thing they dedicated. And it's very interesting why. And the reason why is because the gate served as this visual metaphor, reminding everybody that they are like the gate. It's not the gate itself that's supposed to be reserved for God alone. The gate represented and you know preached the message that all of us, are to be reserved for God alone. And just as they saw these sheep go through this gate in order to give their lives up for God's glory, in the same way it represented that we, or they, are to live each day to give themselves up for the glory and the pleasure of God. Isn't that amazing? Two very powerful visual reminders of why they were created and why they were saved. Can you imagine if we had something like that in our church? Like, do you think we should build like a sheep gate and see, like, and just start sacrificing animals in the middle of our sanctuary? You know, I know some people are very offended by that in 2022, but back then they saw that and it's like, oh man, it reminded them of God. It reminded them of his grace and forgiveness. It reminded them of who they were created for and what they, how they were to live each and every single day. And quite honestly, I think in 2022, all of us Christians need a reminder of that every day. And if, 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 if what it takes is sacrificing animals in front of our eyes to be reminded of that, I'm all for it. I know in 2002, that's not, it's not popular. Please don't write emails and say, oh, that's, you know, animal rights, all that kind of stuff. We're not going to do that. But that's what they did 2000 or many thousand years ago. But if there was something that we could do, you know, to ignite our affections, to remind us and to capture our attention, not only to the gospel of Jesus Christ, but to what God did for us each and every single day. I'm all for it. We need that. And that's exactly what these priests did. What is it saying to us today, though? It's saying that the whole reason why we exist and are saved is so that we can fully give our lives for God alone. That's the message. And that's the whole reason, you know, that's the point of point one. 
you know, everything goes wrong. All of life goes wrong when we fail to keep him first. And when we fail to stay in right standing with him first, right? What does the verse say? Seek God first and his kingdom and be right with him. And the rest of life will take care of itself. God will actually make sure that the rest of life takes care of itself. Isn't that powerful? It really is. And if that's what God wants for us, then we need to believe each and every single day that we live and wake up that whatever God puts in front of our faces was put there so that we can learn to put God first, right? For example, the whole reason why you have a job for those who work is not primarily so that you can pay your bills. But the whole reason why God gave you a job is so that you could put God first in that job. That job is an opportunity for you to declare how amazing God is at that job. The whole reason why we're married is not so that we could fulfill, be fulfilled in some way, right? I mean, it's good, but that's not what the primary, the primary reason for marriage is. God gives us a spouse so that we can learn to put God first in our marriage. God gives us kids so we can learn to put God first in, you know, in our families. God gives us education so that we could learn to use that knowledge to put God first in our lives. God gives us possessions. God gives us money. God gives us, you know, skills and experiences. Why? So that we can use those things to put God first going forward. It's that simple, right? That's why God gives us those things. And just like we said last week, living out that godly principle not only blesses us and changes the church that you attend, but it is absolutely necessary for unbelievers to see that within us. It's not good enough just to be a good Christian at FM or to be a good Christian at church. This whole unbelieving world around us desperately needs to see, and I believe is hungering, is absolutely hungry to see if God really is number one within our lives. They need to see people who are absolutely sold out for God, who, all, who find it their greatest joy to declare how worthy God really is of everything that we are. Because that's what the Bible says God is. And that's who we say God is every single Sunday. But I think the world is absolutely desperate and hungry to see that truth lived out in Christians. And I believe that when we use our possessions and when we use our money, when we use our jobs to worship God, it shows the world that we truly believe that he is worthy of our all. And that our greatest joy is to see all things in this world, especially the things that God gave us, used to serve him and to make him great. I love it as a pastor whenever I see people in my church do stuff like that, you know? I have the privilege of officiating many weddings. I've done I don't know how many weddings in my life. And it's beautiful. I love I love weddings because it's the most maybe some of the, one of the most beautiful days, right? These people, they love each other, they declare and I do, I do, I love you. It's great. Uh you know, the thing is though, you know, most marriages that I do, it's like this celebration of like this these people's love story, which is absolutely beautiful, you know, you know, and and it's beautiful, it's wonderful. It's always about this couple. 
But I one time I did this wedding with this couple who was absolutely different, the second generation Korean couple. And they said, you want to know something, Eddie? We believe that our wedding is not about us, but everything is God. So we're going to make this wedding about God, about Jesus Christ. And I said, okay, well, what does that mean? And they're like, we want to, all we want to do is declare the gospel. All we want to do is proclaim how awesome Jesus is. That's what we want our whole wedding and reception to be about. I said, okay, well, how are we going to do that? And so our wedding prep was prayer. We just prayed together. We're asking God, give us wisdom to put this ceremony and this reception together. And that's what we did. And I believe we tried our best to put a ceremony that just declared how awesome Jesus Christ is. Quite honestly, except for the I do's part and when you put the ring on the finger, the whole service was dedicated to how was just declaring how great Jesus Christ is. It was a proclamation of grace and the gospel and our need to be saved and, and how awesome Jesus Christ is and the love of God that he would do this for us. And that was the wedding that we preached about that day. When we went to the reception, the reception, the rule was all speeches, you're not allowed to talk about the couple. You can only declare how awesome Christ is. Have you ever been to a wedding like that? You're not allowed to dance unless you want to proclaim how awesome Jesus is with your body. Right? That was the rule. And when the groom came out to, gave his, to give his speech, he shared the gospel. And he challenged all the non-believers at his wedding to come to Christ. There was an altar call at the reception. Most couples rent a hotel room so they can do their business on the first night of their marriage. These guys rented the biggest room I know, the biggest hotel room they know. Why? Because they invited every one of their non-Christian friends to come to their hotel room so they can debrief about what they experienced that day. Who does that? This couple did. I got a text at 1 a.m. telling me that three people are going to go to church as a result of their wedding. Isn't that amazing? I'm going to go on. I'm going to brag a little bit more about this couple. After they got married, you know, most second-gen couples, what they do is their whole goal, let's just be honest, for a lot of people is let me make a lot of money. Let me get a bigger and better house. Let me move out to the suburbs. You know, let me move away from drama, you know, and I just want to, I just want bigger and better. And the whole lives, it's bigger and better. Upgrade, upgrade, right? That's what a lot of people do. They go to church and they're, it's fine, but, you know, that's what they do. These guys, they did the exact opposite. They basically circled where they felt like was a great need in their city. And they moved there. That's the first thing they did. They joined a local church. And what they did was they committed themselves to get jobs in their local area. They wanted to be fully committed to shine the light of Christ where they lived. And that's what they do till this day. Right? Isn't that amazing? They saw their wedding and their marriage as an opportunity to declare Christ with everything that they've been now, am I telling you, you guys all have to do that with your life? No, please, I'm not. If you want to, I think that's awesome, and I'll do everything I can to support you. But I don't think that's what I'm asking you to do. But what he, I believe these are the questions that all of us need to answer. And the first is this. How intentional are you about organizing your life so that you can actually live it for Jesus? So that you can make your life actually about Jesus Christ and the gospel. How intentional are you when it comes to your job or your family or your possessions, using them to declare the worthiness of God to the people around you? How are you strategizing to make God first in your life? God designed 
every aspect of our lives to be a worship to him. So take a look at your occupation. Take a look at your ministries. Take a look at your family. Do they all begin at the sheep gate? Start with Christ. Consecrate yourself, your work, your family to the Lord and make him great. Number two, uh, second principle. We serve for God's glory. Number two, God sees and honors your service. You know, the, the reference to this uh, point is the whole chapter. I'm not going to read it again because it's too long and it's too hard for me to read, so I'm not going to do it. But when you read this chapter, it's just a list of all these names of people. Aren't they? That's what it is. But think about it for a moment. Why would God include this, li this list of people and all they did in the Bible? Is it because thousands of years later we, we can dread reading it you know, at church or studying the Bible or studying a Bible study or something like that? No. The reason why he included these people and all that they did was because he was proud of them. And he wanted everyone in every generation following to know how proud he was of each one of these people and what they did. And they're going to be remembered until Jesus Christ comes back by every generation. You know, what does that tell us about God? That he remembers and that he honors every act of service that we do in this life, which means that no matter how big or how small we might think those acts are, they are seen by God, they are remembered by God, and it has the potential to be honored by God. And there are two things that I want to say about that. The first is this. If God is keeping a record of every act of service that you do in your life, then my prayer and my hope is that he has a lot of things to write down in his diary about you. I want you, and the reason why I want that for you is because I want each one of you to be richly rewarded when we get to heaven. When we get to heaven, God says that all of our works will be judged. And those that were done for him, you get rewards for that. And I want each one of you to be richly rewarded when we get there. And so let's make sure that we are rewarded greatly. Let's make sure that we're always living each one of our lives. You know, use the previous point to help you do that. Let's make sure that we're using every aspect of our lives to give him glory and to serve him. But in order to do that properly, we also need to understand the second point I want to make, and that's this. God not only sees what you do, but he sees how you do it, right? And we, as we do things for God, let's make sure that we're doing those things God's Way, which means doing things with the right attitude and motive, right? The, an attitude of love, an attitude of worship, and an attitude of surrender. There's a very curious verse in this whole chapter, and that's verse 5. And I'm going to read that to you. It says this, The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. This is like the only negative verse in this whole chapter. But isn't it funny? These nobles thought they were too good to pick up a hammer, right? They literally thought that, hey, let's let the common folk do the dirty work. You know, our fingernails are too precious to make bricks and to, you know, build a wall. And their attitudes were terrible. And they're forever remembered for that. But when you read the rest of this chapter, you know what you notice? You notice that you read about goldsmiths. You read about perfume makers. You read about merchants and priests. And you know what the common denominator of all these people are? None of them know how to build a wall. 
None of them have ever made a brick or mortar, yet they got their hands dirty building a wall. And for them to be highlighted by God here shows that God honors people who are willing to do anything, anything that he calls them to. So there really is no task that's too low, no task that's too small. There really, it doesn't even really matter if you have the ability, training, skills, or experience. Because what really matters to God when we read this list is that he honors those who are willing to make themselves available to do whatever God wants to do, whether they have the skills, experience, abilities, or not. Right? And if all that's true, then how we do things is just as important as what we do. And people who do things for his honor and glory, whether we're skilled or trained or whatever, as long as we do it and make ourselves available for him with that kind of heart and attitude, he will remember and honor those works and reward you. When I was in uni, I tell this story frequently, but when I was in uni, I was a part of this uh, gospel band. And for three and a half years, you know, we, I was part of this band, but this band is not your normal band. They never looked at musical talent. That was never part of the application process. There was no application process. Uh, all they cared about was they just wanted people who were completely sold out for God, people who just willing to do anything for God, people who don't care what they do for God as long as it's for God. That's all they wanted. Um, so what this band ended up being the literally the most ridiculously low-talented, no-talented musically band I've ever been a part of, right? It was horrific. It was almost shameful, the kind of music that we would put up there. But till this day, I have never seen God use anyone or any group of people more powerfully to bring people to Jesus than this absolutely no-talented musical band who played for Jesus, right? Uh, and this band proved to me that God loves using people who have the right heart more than the right skills. God honors people who are sold out for him. Perfume makers were making bricks. Goldsmiths were like pushing wheelbarrows. But if I can paint the picture more accurately, worshipers were just worshiping God. That's it. Right? Your work matters to God. Your attitude matters to God. And if you want to live a life that's honored and remembered and rewarded by God, then make sure that your heart backs everything that you do. Lastly, God wants us to serve together. When you read this um, chapter, repeatedly, you're going to notice some patterns and notice some repeated words. You know, the word section is used three times or 13 times, sorry, 13 times. A person or a group could only work on one section of a wall at a time, but the whole wall, all two kilometers had to be rebuilt. But what does that tell us? It, it tells us that not one person cannot do the work of the whole wall by themselves. We can only do our part that God calls us to, right? And so when we think about that in a bigger picture as, as like a church, if we want our church to succeed in our mission, our two-kilometer wall mission of making disciples in this world, then each one of us has to play our own part 
right? You don't have to do everything. You don't even have to do a lot of things. But each one of us has to do something. And that's the point I want to make today. You know, I haven't worked out the percentages in FLM, but our church is pretty good at volunteering. We're pretty good at helping out. You know, I'm going to say that like 50% of this room probably serves at some ministry within our church, which I think is pretty cool. But they say that for a church to be healthy, 100% of the people must be volunteering in some way. Is that burdensome for you to, you know, do you guys feel bad or guilty? Good. It's a volunteer, you know, but I don't use, okay, sorry. Anyway, um, Everyone must be involved. Everyone must be volunteering in ministry. Let me give you the biblical reason why. Okay, here's the reason why. And the reason why is because the Bible says so. The Bible says that the body, the church, is a body, and each one of us is a part, right? Each one of us, therefore, must serve each other so that every part gets life from every other part, right? Can you imagine having a body without a heart? You'll die. Can you imagine if you missed one part? Well, you don't have a brain. You die. If you don't have skin, oh, it's disgusting, right? You'll probably die. You know, and that's the whole point. Each one of us, if we're all part of the church, we have to serve each other in order to give each other life. And that's the picture that God paints for us in 1 Corinthians. And so if one person, even one person doesn't serve, then the whole body gets robbed of your life-giving efforts. Okay, And then the rest of the body just has to struggle a lot harder. And that's the picture. Okay, To to emphasize that even more, if you read this chapter, the phrases next to him, after him, or after them, is mentioned 28 times in this chapter. You know, God could have simply made a list and said, Eddie did this, that guy did that, but he doesn't. He doesn't even write it that way. You know what he says? He says, he phrases it like this, next to Eddie was Alex, and next to Alex, after Alex, was Andrew. And he states the list like that, even though they did different things, yet that's how he writes this. What is he saying? He was saying that, He wanted to emphasize that every single person in the church has a role to play next to someone else. What's the saying to us? That God always designed the church to be a team, right? That's it. We were always meant to serve together. And if I can practically illustrate all of these three points in one, this is how I'll say it. You know, when I, you know, every year we try to choose leaders and ever since, you know, in ministry, I've learned that this is what to look for. I, I kind of end up just looking for two things whenever I want to choose a leader. You know what the first thing is? The first thing is attitude, right? Does this person love God? Is this person sold out? Is this person willing to do whatever it takes, you know, to serve God and to make God great? That's a great candidate to be a leader in the church. But you know what the second thing is? If they're a team player, that's that. You know, I've worked next to a lot of great team players, and it just... It's absolutely beautiful because these people are convinced that if we don't do things as a church together, then we're not succeeding as a church, right? It doesn't matter how good the service was. It doesn't matter how good the system was. It doesn't matter how good that program was. If we're not moving together as a church and operating together, then it's not a success. And I love people who think that way. I've served next to people who are non-team players, and I hope none of you have. But these people, instead of giving people life, they kind of have this gift of sapping the energy and the momentum of church, period, 
know what I'm talking about? They think the ministry is about them. They, they use their authority to do what they want. And no one ends up wanting to serve with them or next to them. No one can actually serve with them or for them or next to them. And instead of being a life-giving instrument, they become like this cancer that everybody just wants to throw out. Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Is that too harsh for me to say? But let's just, dude, let's just keep it real. That's how it is, you know? Hopefully none of you have served next to people like that. I unfortunately have. If any of you are like that in your current ministries that you serve, I'm just going to say it. Can you stop? Can you please repent and change? Don't be that guy or that girl. Okay, that's like that. Be a team player. And the thing is, God designed all of us to be a part of a team. It's not like we want to throw you out of the church or we don't want to throw anyone out of the church. We need every single part. And if there's a part that's unhealthy, we don't want, we're not going to just take it out. We want to make it healthier. And so if you're that person, repent and change and let's move together. And let's be a, let's be a team together. We need all of you to be a part of that team. Right? Uh, you know what the greatest benefit of being part of a team is? Support. And I'll just share one little practical example and I'll try to bring this thing to an end. You know, there were always times in ministry where I struggle. I'm a human being and I struggle. And I've been a part of a few churches. And I remember one time I was a part of this one church and I would share from the pulpit. I would share with my leaders, hey, I'm really struggling these days. It's really hard for me days. Can you really pray for me? And, you know, a lot of times when I do that from the pulpit, like, it's cool. But uh, I remember there was one ministry I was a part of. And I would share the one time I shared, you know, very, like, openly and, and honestly. And it was like crickets were in the room. I could hear the crickets. Yeah, no one's like, no one cared. And it was very, like, depressing, and it was horrific, you know, and I wanted to get out of that ministry so quickly. But in the two years that I've been here at Full Life, you know, there are times that I do share my struggles here in the pulpit. There are times I share it at leaders' meetings with my officers. And one thing I'm so thankful for about being a part of this particular team is that my phone always blows up. After I share something on a Sunday, I'll receive messages from strangers, you know, from you guys, just saying, hey, Eddie, I'm praying for you. Sorry to hear that that's going on, but we're behind you. We're praying for you. Sometimes, and most of them I know the people. Sometimes I don't even, but I'm so, like, thankful. Because there are times in your spiritual life where you don't want to give any effort. There are some times and there are some moments in your life where you just, you just don't have the strength or the energy to pick yourself up. But when you know that you're part of a team that's willing to support you when you can't even support yourself, that's a team I want to be a part of. And that's why everyone needs to be part of a team, right? Um, that's why your CG team, if I can say it that way, is so important. That's why your ministry team is so important. That's why your leadership team is so important. It's so that we can support and strengthen each other. And if you notice, you know, on an organizational level, that's what we're really trying to do. We're trying to move our whole ministry in that direction. So here we go. If you're not volunteering anywhere, can you volunteer? Right? We, we mention every week there's welcoming ministry, there's meeting. There's so many places that you can do. And when you do volunteer, please be a team player. Ask, hey, what do you guys need? I'll try to do it. You know, we know that all of you have gifts and all of you have strengths, and we want to cater to those things too. But there are just certain needs that the body has, you know, and it's okay if you're not trained or experienced. God will use you right? Perfume makers were laying bricks. That's all I'll say. And God will use you and remember you and honor you. And hopefully that's our heart. If you don't know where to start serving, talk to your CG leader. Hey, is there anything I can do regularly to help you guys out, to serve our people? 
that's great. Or you can serve here. Or if there is something that you feel like, oh man, I think I can give life to our church in this way, come talk to me. Come talk to any one of our leaders and we'll make sure, well, we, you know, we'll try to do something to make sure that you can give life to the body. God wants us to serve together. Three principles of service. We serve to glorify God alone. God sees and honors our service, and he wants us to serve as a team. He wants us to serve together. You were created for ministry. God saved you to be a minister in the renewal of your generation for his glory. You may not know what that might be right now, but that's why this chapter is so great. You don't have to know what ministry you're called to to serve God. Why? Because everything can be a service to God and a worship to God. And as you live out these three principles of service in your life, it will always keep your heart and your life directed eternally. Let's serve and let's pray. The one thing that, this one picture that is always like churning through my heart and my mind is this that, you know, is, is a God that's saying, hey, you were created for something greater, something eternal. And yes, there's some very attractive things on this earth like houses and cars and education and status, salaries, toys. But those are never the goal. Don't ever let them be the goal. He's the goal. And those things all serve him. And we're created to declare his praises. But in order for them to do so, it's got to come from people who are absolutely sold out for him. People whose whole life not only starts, but resides in and ends at that sheep gate. So if I can just invite you to say, hey, maybe, will you start strategizing to make your life about declaring how amazing God is? Will you become a servant in those areas? Maybe there's one area that God wants to talk to you about today. Pray and learn to surrender those things and let's all become servants and to give our lives for his glory each and every single day. Let's pray.
reminded this morning from one of our leaders that serving God is really difficult and painful. And we were reminded that um, the, the road that Jesus invited us to was the narrow path. It's the road of suffering. And it's only when we actually choose to serve others and to live our lives as servants that God reveals the ugliness of our hearts, the selfishness of our hearts. But the moment we repent of those things and we surrender to become a servant, that's when we make ourselves available to be used for His glory. And there is nothing greater than having more of Him and having Him use us to do something that we could never do no matter how hard we tried. All of us are called to be servants because God loves us and he wants you and he's not done with you yet and he wants you to be more like Jesus and he's going to work every single day of your life to make you more like Jesus. But if you want to be on a quicker path, can I invite you to become a servant? Because it is the life of servanthood that will teach you quickly how to be like Jesus. It's hard. It sucks. It's painful. But the fruits of those things are eternal. And I pray that that's the choice you make for your life every single day. So can I just invite you to spend the next 30 minutes, and I don't know what you're going to talk to God about, but... Let's just talk to God honestly and sincerely about being His servant. Let's pray. you'll make us your servants father in our society we always want to be leaders you know we always want to be people uh, in prestigious positions you know but Lord we know that you love servants no matter what position we have no matter what our title says so God make us your servants people who just find it their greatest joy to declare how amazing and wonderful you really are and people who are fully surrendered to you and are willing to use our jobs, use our marriages, use our families, use our possessions, whatever it is, all of our skills, talents, experiences, so that we can declare how amazing you really are and to make you great to this unbelieving world. Use our lives so that they can know Jesus through us and teach us how to use all of those things to serve you and to serve them with your greatness. Lord, we pray that you'll make the people in our ministry great. Teach us how to do that. 
and teach us to be that for you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.